Hey, welcome, Church of the Beloved. Uh, <clears throat> we're so glad that you guys are joining us uh, online from wherever you are. Um, we actually have some people from our church inside the auditorium, and uh, our staff has been working really hard to um, get, get our church to regather in person sooner than later. So uh, we do hope to see you guys uh, in person soon. Well, today is Palm Sunday. I don't know if you guys knew that or woke up excited about that. Uh, one of the things about Palm Sunday is that it often gets overshadowed by other events in the church calendar. Um, Palm Sunday, it, it actually gets overshadowed by some of the events that are going to be happening uh, just a week from today. Uh, it gets overshadowed by Good Friday, where Jesus is uh, on the cross, and we reflect on the crucifixion uh, and his death, right? But then we also see that Palm Sunday gets overshadowed by Easter Sunday. One week from Palm Sunday is the resurrection of Jesus. And so people get to uh, experience that and celebrate that. And so Palm Sunday, I was thinking about this week, how it's kind of like the middle child of the family. I don't know if you guys come from a family of three, but it's like that middle child that gets uh, overshadowed by the older brother or, or older sister and the younger sibling. And, you know, it's kind of like it's there, but not really. You know what I mean? And, and so uh, even in the church calendar, when churches start to plan, a lot of times it's around Easter, but not so much on Palm Sunday. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there's something significant about Palm Sunday. There's something about Palm Sunday that's worth noting, and, I, and this is not just my opinion. In fact, if you guys read the gospel books, uh, all four gospel books actually include the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every gospel writer thought it was significant enough important enough when they saw the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus they said when he came to Jerusalem on that day that was significant enough to say that must be in the account now, now that's significant because not every gospel writer is saying the exact same stories there's a lot of overlap but there's some things that are not included because they wanted to focus on something else one of those is actually the birth story of Jesus. I don't know if you guys know this, but even the birth of Jesus was not mentioned in all four Gospels. That's something to think about, right? And you, could just, you don't have to check now. Just trust me. Check later. But if, you're, if your Bible ha has the birth story of Jesus in all four, then, that, then you got the wrong Bible, all right? But, but even the birth of Jesus is not included in all four. The question is, why then is Palm Sunday included in every gospel is because there's something significant about Palm Sunday. We got to get a clear picture of what's happening. Like who's there? There's a lot of people there, right? So who's there? What, what are they saying and why are they saying it? And what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about the need that we have as a humanity for Jesus to come from heaven to earth? So the picture is this. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Well, I know we're only in Matthew 21, and there's about seven, eight chapters left. But, but this is, the rest is just spent on the last week of Jesus' life. In other words, the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, he, he, was, he was five days away from being handed over to the Romans and being crucified on the cross. So the last week of Jesus, he's going to be crucified on the cross, and we call that Good Friday. 
So he's at the end of his life, and I thought about this week how significant that should be for you and for me and all those that may even be curious about what is it like to follow Jesus. For believers, we know that, that Jesus is Lord, that he, he, he's our Savior. He, he's someone significant, and he is, the, he is the most significant. He is at the center of our lives. And whenever you have someone that significant in your life, you know, you think about maybe your spouse or, or a relative, family member, friend. Whenever you hear the news or you know that the, the reality is they, they are at the end of their life, doesn't it do something to your life? See, what happens is when you hear the news or you, you understand that, man, they're at the end of their life. They're, they're now at an age where their days are coming to an end. And, and you... And you realize that that reality, what it does is their life causes you to reflect on your life in a profound way. Oftentimes, you know, we, we have this moment, maybe at a funeral, where you, you see how, how, you know, the brevity of life and how fast time could go. And it makes you think about your life in a way. And I, I think Palm Sunday is one of those opportunities for us as a church to reflect on the last days of Jesus but in a way where we can see, how should this impact my life? How should this impact my days? How should this impact how I use the resources, the talents, the, the, uh, the, um, the gifts, and all the things that God has given me? Time, how should I use it in my life as I reflect at the end of Jesus' life, right? And so, it's a sobering thing. It's a, it's a sobering awakening as we think about, man, Jesus is just five days away from crucifixion. That's something to, to ponder. But here it is. Jesus is at the end of his life, uh, five days away from the cross, and he's entering into the city called Jerusalem, kind of the, 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 the Jewish Mecca. It's the center of worship for, for the Jewish people. And every year what would happen is that there was a pilgrimage, people from Galilee and, and all areas outside Jerusalem, long distances. They would come because they would celebrate the annual Passover feast. Now, we don't have time to get into that, but it goes back to the story of Exodus where God delivered Israel from, from Egypt and the slavery there and from Pharaoh and, and God passed over and spared and saved uh, his people by the blood of the lamb of the doorpost. They would celebrate that every year in Jerusalem. So multitudes would come, right? They would come to, to celebrate this Passover feast. So you have a lot of people there. There was a small group called the Disciples, but they weren't the majority. The disciples were those who followed Jesus. They were there to even bring the cult to Jesus. They followed him wherever he went. They saw his miracles and were there when he taught. And, and then there were there, those that, that were around the ministry of Jesus, maybe healed. And like Lazarus was there, who was raised from the dead. And people who heard him teach with authority. And they were just, they had, you know, so he had a following. And so some of, some of those were there in the crowd as well. But there were also this crowd that just came to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. And there were some that were just curious, like, what's going on outside? They just heard a noise. They heard a commotion. They're like, what, what's going on? And, and I know this because that's what the Bible says. It says in verse 10 that the whole city was stirred. 
all of Chicago was stirred. Every neighborhood, South Loop, Downtown, River North, Worker Park, those are the only four neighborhoods I know. But all of Chicago was stirred and they all came out because they heard a noise. What's going on? And you know what they said in Matthew 21 at the end there? It says, who is this? Some of them didn't even know who Jesus was. Right? And isn't that, that like human nature? Like whenever we just hear, we just follow the crowd. We, we just, wherever the people are running to, we just, we just, we don't even know why, we're, but we just, we're like going that way. And that's what was happening. There was a multitude of people going. In fact, just to give you some perspective, uh, some scholars say that in the town uh, at that time, Jerusalem was about 40,000 people. But during the annual Passover feast, there were about six times that number coming from all over the place. So you have a couple hundred thousand people there, and what they're doing is they're all welcoming Jesus as Jesus is entering the city. They're welcoming him, and what's happening is um, they would get palm branches, they would uh, uh, get the branches, and, and, and some would lay them on the, the path that Jesus would, would go on, and some would just wave it, and so that's why we call it Palm Sunday. Because they would get these palm branches and wave it and put them at the feet of Jesus. And then you, you got to ask the question, like, why, why palm branches? It's not something we do today. You, you know, 2,000 years ago, the reason why they did it was because palm branches actually in the Jewish custom was a, was a symbol. When they would wave it, it was a symbol of national victory for Israel. It, you know, the history of Israel was one in which they were under a lot of oppression and uh, under the rule of a lot of different um, kings and rulers. And, 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 and whenever they would find victory, palm branches was symbolic for how they uh, found liberty. And so, you know, the, what I think about is, I don't know if you guys follow soccer. Anybody here follow soccer? Uh, I, I don't follow soccer at all, except when it's the World Cup right? Anybody with me? Like, when it's the World Cup, I don't know what it is. My, like, my national pride just, like, kicks into, you know, gear, and I get all, I, all of a sudden, I get Korean pride all over me, right? In, in 2002, right, when I was, like, five years old, um, maybe I was, like, 21, but in 2002, when I was in college, uh, South Korea was in the World Cup, and uh, if you are Korean, or if you know Korean people, you, you might remember this time if you're, if you were around, right? And in 2002, South Korea, you know, it's a small country, not really known for soccer, but all of a sudden that year, they started to win matches unexpectedly. They were winning, uh, defeating countries that they never thought they could, and people were like so surprised, like, oh, they're going to lose the next one. But they kept winning and winning. They got all the way to the semifinals. And this, you know, what was happening in Korea had reached California, had reached maybe all over the world, every Korean, wherever you were in the world, man, Korean pride was in full gear. And what had happened was they started to uh, make these red t-shirts and there was a slogan and the slogan said, be the reds. And to this day, tw 20 years later, I don't even know why that, what that means, be the reds, but it was a red t-shirt, be the reds. And you see Koreans all over the world just cheering for their team. I was in California at that time, serving at a Korean-American church, and uh, I remember, like, we would always pray for, you know, unity and all that, and, and during the World Cup, when South Korea was doing well, I never saw such unity. Like, I never saw more unity than, than that. I mean, it, it was fake, you know, it was a fake unity, but it was unity. It was like all these Koreans that hated each other got together, watching soccer, wearing the same shirt, 
They're matching shirts. You know, restaurants opened up their business late hours so they can uh, watch together. They opened up homes. Churches opened up their sanctuaries and had soccer, the World Cup, in their uh, worship, you know, uh, uh, worship room. And so you, you see all these Koreans just congregate. And the games were at like 3, 4 a.m. So in 2002, Koreans didn't sleep. We, we just did not sleep. And we were like, go Korea, be the Reds. Whatever that means, right? And, and it was just this, this um, it was this rally. It was this, 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 this cheer that victory is here, that victory is right around the corner. And we, it, it was like, it was this imminent reality and we didn't get all the way to the finals, but it was a sense that, man, victory is here. We have never been here before. And it was this rally you saw. And, and when I think about Palm Sunday, you, you got to imagine these, these are a couple hundred thousand people waving palm branches. You know, they're not wearing the red T-shirts, but they've got the palm branches. They're in unison. They're in accord. They're, they're doing this together. And they're singing the same thing. They're shouting the same thing. It's in your scriptures. It says, Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, Hosanna in the highest. Right? That's just one voice. That's just me saying it. But imagine 200 plus thousand people in one accord. They're not singing different verses. They're singing the same verse. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Times that by 200,000. And you will see why the Bible says the whole city was stirred. You know, and so this is a pretty big deal. That Jesus had this incredible welcome. And I want you to just kind of feel the magnitude of that. The weight of all these people, 200,000 plus, waving and singing and shouting the same thing. Hosanna in the highest. You know, just living in South Loop, um, for the last couple of years, we, we live pretty close to Soldier Field where the Chicago Bears play. But, uh, but every now and then, you, you know, you would see concerts that are happening. Not so much in recent times because of the pandemic. But I remember about two, three years ago, we had uh, Beyonce come into town and, and do a concert at Soldier Field. We had BTS, right? If you guys are into K-pop, uh, come to uh, Soldier Field. And Soldier Field, I did the study for the purposes of God's kingdom, right? Uh, I did the study of how many, what's the max capacity at Soldier Field, and it's at 61,000. And when, so when Beyonce came to town and she did a concert at Soldier Field, 61,000 people were all singing together, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. And, and just imagine, like, you're hearing 60,000 people singing, all the single ladies. Or when BTS comes, they did a two-night concert, and 100,000 people came through. And they're singing dynamite at the same time. Just imagine the magnitude and the weight of that. Well, 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, they sang Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And the whole city came out. And the question we have to ask is why? Where we pause and where we reflect is why are they singing? We understand what they're saying, but what's behind the words? And they're, the reason why they're singing Hosanna, they're shouting Hosanna, is, is because it actually comes from Psalm 118. It's a Hebrew word, Hoshiana. 
Hosanna is literally just translated into English here and just dropped into Matthew 21. But it's a Hebrew word which actually means save us, O Lord. You can find it in Psalm 118. Hosanna means save us, O Lord. And here, uh, what it's talking about is not save us from our sin, but listen, it's save us from our circumstance. Save us not from our sin, but save us from our circumstance. Save us not from what's happening on the inside of me. Save us from what's happening on the outside of me. Have we ever prayed that? Have you ever realized how much of our prayers is more about the external than the internal? You ever realize how much of our prayer and our thoughts are consumed and, and why we lose sleep at night? It's not because we, are, we, we find the awareness and the deep need for Jesus to, to uh, uh, help us overcome our sin, but it's just all the stuff around us. And so the, the Israelites and the crowd, the multitudes are saying, Jesus is going to save us. And he's going to save us. They're not talking about sin. They're saying he's going to save us from Rome. He's going to save us from this oppression that they felt uh, under Rome. And so when you start to uh, peel away the layers of the praise, what you find is behind the praise is the expectation. The expectation that Jesus is this military victor. The, The expectation that they're going to find national liberty the expectation that they're going to find immediate freedom. The, 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 the expectation that, that, that now they can wave their flag as God's people. And behind the praise was that expectation. And my, my question for us is, how does Jesus respond on Palm Sunday? Jesus is entering the scene in the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people in one accord saying, Hosanna, you are blessed. You come in the name of the Lord because you're going to save us from our circumstance. And yet, how does Jesus respond to that? Well, he comes not on a war horse or a stallion or on chariots as kings would in those times when they would declare victory for their people. Jesus would come on a colt. He would come on a donkey. Not really what you would expect from someone who's going to conquer Rome. He comes on a donkey and the scripture says he comes in humility. Humble and mounted on a donkey is what the scripture says. So Jesus, because he did not come to conquer Rome, at least not yet. He will renew all things, it says in Revelation. But when Jesus came 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, he had an assignment on earth. And his assignment was not to conquer Rome. His assignment was bigger. His assignment was more grand. His assignment, his task given by the Father was to actually conquer the sin, not around us, but sin in us. And people are like, what? That's, That's not what we're shouting for. Because little did they know that that's actually what they needed. And I want to just, I want you to hear me. We live in a really interesting time. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of tension. We live in a very polarized society. And, and here's what, it's nothing new. We've been in a broken world for a very long time. Amen? And the answer is not 
Lord, change my circumstance or conquer Rome. Jesus' answer was conquer my sin. What he's saying is everything broken in the world is because of the sin that is in us. What Jesus realizes when we don't even realize it is that the issue is not external. The issue is internal. The issue is not Rome. The issue is sin. You see, Jesus knew what they wanted, but Jesus gave what they needed. And what they needed was a Savior who would heal and forgive and release them from the oppression of their sin that they were in bondage to. Jesus wanted to, or they wanted to have Jesus fix everything around them, yet Jesus came to forgive what was in them. And this changes the way I pray. That I, I got to stop myself sometimes from praying too much about Jesus fix everything around me. When my prayer should be more about Jesus forgive the sin in me. I wonder what our world would look like if we can start there. Not change and conquer Rome, but conquer the sin that's in me and it's in us. And so this is, how, this is why Jesus came on a cult. He came humble. And he, he didn't come to Jerusalem for the temporary applause of men. And I want you to hear me because I know I, I live so much of my life and my, my thoughts are, uh, you know, I, I puff myself up. I have an inflated view sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I go there when I, I just start to revel in the applause of men. Have you been there? Like, Man, that's not a good place to be when it's about me, myself, and I and my reputation. Jesus did not come for the temporary applause of men. He came to be the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And in just a few days, you would see Jesus on the cross and some of them there in the crowd would see Jesus on the cross and, and Jesus is no longer on a colt, but he's hung on a cross and he's nailed there and he's not there you know, trying to perform anything. He's there to take the sins of the world and they would put a crown of thorns on him and he would bleed and he would and he, he can't he couldn't even breathe right he would suffocate and, and people would spit on him and he would be mocked he was the he was something to be laughed at right and and you know what's fascinating about palm sunday is i think about the last week of jesus's life in the same week jesus heard the most extreme praise and also the most extreme curse in the same week, Jesus heard Hosanna in the highest. And in the same week, he heard crucify him, spit on him. And listen to how Jesus responds, okay? Listen to my words. Jesus did not give in to the crowd. And Jesus does not give up on the cross. Amen by myself. Jesus does not give in to the crowd. In other words, when the crowds have all these expectations, it would be so easy for us to just please the crowd rather than pursue my call. It would be easier for me just to say, you know what, let's revel in this. But instead, Jesus has the humility and he knew who he was. He knew his assignment. He was faithful. He was obedient. He stayed humble. He didn't go, yeah, I'm blessed I blessed am I you know he doesn't say Hosanna in the highest me he doesn't revel in the party 
he stays faithful to the call. He doesn't give in to the crowd, and he doesn't give up on the cross. No matter what he heard, no matter what noise surrounded him, the only voice that mattered was the voice of his father. He said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved. I want you to know that Jesus stayed faithful. Jesus is always faithful, and Jesus stays steadfast to his promises. Jesus knew why he was sent. Palm Sunday reminds me that Jesus had a single-minded focus to do what the Father has called him to do. He wasn't distracted. He didn't give in to the crowd. He didn't give up on the cross. He, didn't, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't uh, taken away and swayed and swept away by the expectations of man. He, he, didn't go, he didn't glory in the temporary applause of men. Jesus had a single-minded focus to do what the Father has called him to do. So when the people said, Hosanna in the highest, he, it didn't, he didn't let it puff him up. And when Jesus on the cross, when people said crucify him, he didn't let it bring him down. He was not puffed up when people praised him, and he was not pushed out when people cursed him. Jesus was completely humble and obedient, even to the point of a death on the cross. Someone told me, Years ago, when I was in, uh, kind of starting ministry, someone said, James, ministry is not an easy road. You're going to experience some really uh, high highs and some really low lows. And I think that's true. And then he also said this. He said, James, in ministry, don't let success get to your head and don't let failure get to your heart. I, th- I think that might be helpful for some of you. Don't let success get to your head and don't let failure get to your heart. And that, that's been so helpful for me in, my, in ministry and just in life. And what I think it's really getting to is the heart of humility. That when someone is truly humble, it means that their life is not centered on me, myself, and I. When someone is humble, they know who they are in the Father's love. They know who they are in the kingdom. They know their assignment and their task God has given them. There might be all this noise. There might be some highs and there might be some lows. But someone who is humble stays single-minded, focused on what God has called them to do. When success happens, it doesn't puff them up. And when failure happens, it doesn't push them out because they are grounded and rooted in the Father's love. That's humility. Humility says it's not about me. Amen? Humility says it's about the glory of God and the good of others. It says Jesus is at the center of my life. Right? Humility actually allows us to serve God and serve other people. That's why Jesus, when he came on a colt and on a donkey, the Bible says he came in humility. He came humble, mounted on a donkey. Humility allows you to serve others, not yourself. If you were to ride on a stallion, it's, it's all about bring all the attention to me. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus came sent by the Father to do the Father's will. He came to bring the Father glory. Right? I want to share with you a couple passages here in John chapter 17, verse 4 through 5. It should be on your screen. It says, 
Jesus is speaking. He says, I glorified you on earth. He's talking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is saying, Father, I glorified you on earth. I have done what you have called me to do. And he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What he's saying is, he's saying it's not about the temporary uh, praise and applause of man. He says, I'd rather be glorified by my Father. I'd rather be exalted by God, right? I'd rather be exalted by the King, right? And so he says, I glorify you on earth. I've done what you've called me to do. And he says, and now God, Father, glorify me. It's not Father, glorify me first, so then I will glorify you. I will glorify you. And now glorify me. Philippians 2 5 through 11. I want you to see this on your screen. It says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not exalted himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, right? Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, what Philippians is saying is that Jesus did not come to exalt himself he came to empty himself he humbled himself and in doing so God the father saw his humility and exalted him to the highest place you guys see how that works and I want you to know that so much of our lives is instead of being in humility we try to exalt ourselves and as a result we get humbled instead of being humble and letting God lift us up And I want you to know that Jesus is giving us, not he's not just doing this for us and on our behalf, which he does, but his life is also one to imitate. He's setting an example for those who follow him. He says, have that mind of Christ, which is yours. What mind is that? It's the mind that doesn't exalt oneself. It's the mind that empties oneself. It's the mind that humbles oneself. And you know who you should let do the work of exalting you? God. Do not live so that man could exalt you. Do not live so that your coworkers can exalt you. Don't live so that your followers can glorify you. Live in humility like Jesus. And watch God lift you up. In Luke 14, 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's another book in, called James. It's, it's, it's a good book, good name. James chapter 4, verse 10 also says the same thing. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and what? And he will exalt you. It's fascinating how many times in the Bible when you see the word humble, there's also the word exalt. It goes together that when you humble yourself, God exalts you. Let God be the one to lift you up. Amen? 
Let God be the one to say, well done. Let God be the one to say, man, that's good. Let God be the one, right? So much of our lives is just about, um, you know, exalting ourselves and making our reputation better and just trying to get approval. And so much of our lives, if we're honest, is about making my name great. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is giving the example, make his name great. We, uh, you, I, me, us, church, we aren't just randomly by accident placed here on earth just to work and have a house and have kids and just die one day, right? You and I, the church, we have been placed here on earth for such a time as this to do what the Father has called us to do, but to do it in humility where we're not exalting ourselves, but to do it in humility which stands for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what a church of the beloved is called to do, to do with single-minded focus what God has called us to do. Do you know your task? Do you know your assignment? And I, I know I'm running out of time, but this is my last sermon, so it's okay. Many of you guys know that this is my last Sunday for our family as staff on CLTB, and hopefully in the future we could come and visit, maybe even preach. But, and I thought, you know, if, I can, if it wasn't Palm Sunday and I, and I could choose whatever message I want as my last message, what would it be? And you know what's funny? I think it would actually be this, be this message. And I, I want to end with this. 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. I think that would be my message to you, church. And whether you're single or married, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you work full-time whatever you do regardless of your age regardless of your occupation whatever you do do it all for the glory of God not for your name but for God's name and his renown and his glory and in doing so for the good of others right we we live in a culture so obsessed with what we do it's in fact when you meet someone new that's what you ask hey what do you do We're so obsessed with what we do. But here, 1 Corinthians 10 is reminding us the better question is not, what do you do? The question is, who is it for? You know, and and, uh, as we start to wrap up our time here in Chicago, people have asked, you know, so Pastor James, what are you going to do when you go back to California? What's your wife going to do? What's your family going to do? And I don't even, I don't know. I don't even know where we're going to live in three months from now. I don't know what my wife's going to do. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do three months from now. But here's what I know. I know who it's for. Amen? I don't even know what, I don't know what next week is going to hold for me. But here's what I know. Whether I eat or drink, I want to do it all for the glory of God. So my prayer on Palm Sunday is, Lord, keep me humble. That my life is not about me. And that you're at the center so that I can do all things for the glory of God. And may that be true of you. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads? God, what a sobering um, event Palm Sunday actually was. You know, it's no wonder that every gospel writer thought it was important to write it into their account. That when you, Jesus, entered Jerusalem... You entered 
in all humility, when you weren't swayed by the temporary applause of men, you came to serve and you came to bring glory to God and God exalted you to the highest name above every name. And I just pray that on this Palm Sunday, Lord, that you would continually speak to our church today and even throughout this week as we start to reflect on our days. How do we want to use our life? How do we want to use the rest of the time, God, you have given to us? The resources, the, 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 the people, the talents, Lord, would you allow us to hear from you on Palm Sunday to say, Lord, Keep us humble. Help me as I humble myself that whether I eat or whether I drink, that I can do it. That our church, the church of the beloved, can do it all to the glory of God, whom we will see face to face one day.